Welcome to Moonshine Murmurs, a podcast from Stillhouse Press. Thank you for joining us as we interview our authors about their writing and process as artists. We're so glad you're here. You can find more about our press and the books discussed in this episode at our website, stillhousepress.org. Hello, I'm here with Josh Denzel, author of Supernormal, the latest book from Stillhouse Press, released on November 7th, 2023. My name is Carol Mitchell, and I am a managing editor at Stillhouse Press, and I am the manager, managing editor of Supernormal by Josh Jensel. I'm really excited to be here talking with Josh this morning, and I'm going to kind of jump straight in. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Josh. He is the author of the collection Not Everyone is Special. He currently lives in Barcelona with his three boys, his amazing wife, who I've heard so much about that I'm longing to meet her. His mother-in-law, four cats, a dog, hundreds of books, and a growing collection, I've heard, and an electronic drum kit. Welcome, Josh. It's really great to have this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. I love talking to you. (laughs) Okay, so we've been working on this book together for a while now. So I feel like even though we haven't met, like I know you really well, and I definitely know the story really well, but obviously our audience doesn't. So let's start a bit with the origin story. I know that you've been living with these characters, Beth, Taylor, Denise, Philip, um, Edna, for quite a while. Like, where did that start? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the first time I had an idea for the book was over 20 years ago, and I was living in uh, Los Angeles at the time. And I actually was driving to go visit my mom. I was driving cross country. She lived in Chicago. And I had a like a recorder that you talk into to tell your ideas. And that was the that was the beginning. And my very first idea was about Philip. And Philip was had this thing like the idea was is that philip was deathly afraid of being touched and that he would uh basically he felt like he would die if somebody touched him and that idea stayed in the book through multiple multiple rewrites and for anyone who reads it now will find out that idea is completely completely gone now um but that's where it started it started with philip the young boy and it, it just kind of grew from there Okay, great. So I remember I have read a version of it, I believe, where Philip had that concern. I think that was the one that maybe that you submitted originally to Stillhouse yeah. Press he, that was in it. So, you know, obviously we can tell just from the this conversation so far that this book has gone through a number of iterations. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that process from draft to completion even just from working with Stillhouse itself you know the draft that came in and the rewrite that you did and what like what ideas did you pull out what did you what was the decision making process I guess is the question I'm trying to ask yeah of course well there was a couple of rewrites before Stillhouse and um the first one I I sort of just like I just wanted to get a draft done so that wasn't the strongest draft Um, but I got to the end and it was the first time I'd ever written a novel. And so then it was a process of saying, well, what's working in here and what's not working in here. And so I mentioned this part of it because at a very early part in the book, I sort of settled on a structure that the book was going to have three sections 
and there were going to be these four chapters and each chapter was going to be from a different person's point of view and that they were all going to be long chapters, 20, 30 pages each. I don't know why that happened or what, but every draft I did after that, no matter how much I changed the story or took people out or whatever, I kept that structure through about three drafts. And so um, the, the final one, the one that still have that you all accepted, I actually had taken around to agents as well. And I felt pretty strongly about it. And um, I did that for about two years. And then I don't know how long it was in your queue, but I imagine that takes a long time too. I bet it was probably in there for like a year or something. And so during that time, while I was submitting to agents, while it was sitting in queues, I wrote another novel. And that I think was the the biggest learning experience for me was to get away from those characters and, and attack a novel in a different way and, and sort of say, I'm different than the person that was writing these drafts of Supernormal for the last, you know, 15 years or whatever. And so that brings us to when Stillhouse accepted it, which um, what ended up happening was, is that was the first time I had read it in a long time. So you, you, you Rebecca, I think, contacted me and and I hope I was so excited. I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, this book that I've been working on forever is going to find a home. And I read it and I thought, this can't be the book that we put out. You know, like I was, I was so ex excited and I was so, you know, honored and everything. But at the same time, I just knew that with the process I'd been going through with this other novel and where I was as a writer, I just knew that I could do it better, that I could find, like I was reading it and saying that I did all these drafts before, but I can do it, I can do this new draft. And so that's what I did. It was during the, the pandemic. That's when I, I, I really started focusing on what was important in the book. And that's why I lost some of the things, the gimmicky things. And, and the best thing I did was to say, this book does not need that structure. That structure is holding me back. And the moment I said, I can just write this book and it can live and breathe in any way that it wants to, whatever it's telling me to do. And I just follow it. And, and it was great. It was like taking the same characters, breaking them down to like their most elemental level. Like what, what makes them tick? Like, what is it about them? I also shifted a bit. I think in earlier drafts, I focused more on Philip, the boy. And in this newer draft, I thought that the three adult siblings of the of his teacher that he sort of finds out have superpowers which we haven't gotten into yet but they were the more interesting story and philip is there and he's still a part of it but i've shifted the focus to them so i i shifted to the adults and i uh, got rid of the structure and i it was just amazing but i will say it was like starting over i didn't use very much from the original draft and so when i did submit it to you it was a little light, right? The page numbers, I think the page I had cut like half, it was like half the length that it was before. And I'm constantly telling everyone, and I know we're having this conversation now, but I don't know if I've ever said it to you, but I only think this book got to that next, that final draft and the one that we put out because of our interaction and because of working with you, Carol, because you, I think, got what I was doing, especially seeing that original draft and then seeing what I came back with and, you know, all of your notes, everything that was that we did during that time was so helpful. And I just feel like this book now exists because of that process. Like 
it could only be what it is now because we went through all that and we did it that way and that kind of like crazy insane uh back and forth but it's I, I'm so proud of it now and it feels like me it feels like the writer I am now but I still got to give those characters I've been carrying around a long time I still got to give them a home so yeah so as you mentioned I haven't talked much much about the book yet um and I'm going to in a minute but before I get to that I have one more question for you about process because I really enjoyed this process that we did you know the back and forth that we had because I love this book and I I really think that what all that you said about letting go of the the gimmicks and the structures and the ideas you have in your head is so important because I see it I, I do it myself I see it so many so much with authors and you know these are just kind of props or things that we're holding on to maybe sometimes just I don't know for what reason you know there could be a myriad of reasons but the question I had for you and I'm going to start with the question and I'm going to talk a little bit more so you have time to think about it which is <laughs> like, who are your influences because you have this very unique style of writing you know you're funny just naturally you know the humor just comes across on the page so well but it's not a comedy I mean it's a really serious story about family about um you know struggling mental health I mean there's so many so many themes in there that are that are gut-wrenching and touching and you know we really feel and connect to these characters but you're still very funny and you still have this very light touch and I guess the question, as I said at the beginning, was like, who would you say are your influences in your writing um, or your, you know, authors that you admire? Yeah, um, I mean, it's hard because depending on which day you catch me, I'd probably say other people. I, I, I mean, a lot of people read a lot. I read a lot. And I'm like the kind of person where you can say to me, what are the books you read this year? And I'll suddenly have a blank, like I read 50 books or something and I can't even remember them all at that exact moment. So with that sort of uh, lead in of saying, I'm just gonna tell you what comes to mind right now and I might regret later not saying some other writers, but I would say a huge influence on me would be like in my younger years, we're actually like science fiction writers. You know, I read a lot of uh, like Isaac Asimov and you know, like just like straight sci-fi stuff, Robert A. Heinlein when I was a kid. And I really liked mystery books. So I read like Agatha Christie and just whatever I could get my hands on. My mom was a huge reader as well. And she she had a ton of like thriller books. She was really into just name of like Stephen King type person. And my mom had all of them that she picked up from the grocery store. And, um, and so early age, I read a lot of that stuff too. I mean, I was reading Stephen King probably well before I, I should have been allowed to. As I got older, I, I realized that there was like story, right? Because I really into movies too. And that's the other thing. I think that that like being interested in film and actually going to film school and writing scripts and going to, you know, to LA to work in film for a while and try to make that my career. I think that also influenced my writing in a way that's maybe different than other writers um, because I did spend so much time writing scripts and having a reliance on dialogue and that, those kind of interactions. And I think that that's maybe where I'm able to find some of the humor, right? And in the scenes and things that might be, like I always joke that I'll say to somebody, oh, my story, this is a really funny one. And then I'll say what it's about. 
And then they'll say, that doesn't sound funny at all because the plot and everything doesn't sound funny. But, but I, 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 you know, it just sort of like want to make it funny. So I, I think that as I got older and I started to like really look for writers, I sort of gravitate toward the people that can find humor in situations like that. And whether it's in a movie or whether it's in a book. And so, I mean, a big one for me, I always say is George Saunders. I think George Saunders is a, a wonderful writer, but you know, there was also a lot of people doing really great sort of mishmash of um, sci-fi. And, you know, I mean, like I think Margaret Atwood can find humor in anything you know, and I, there's so many, God, there's so many people. Uh, I really love uh, Scarlett Thomas. I don't know if you've ever read her, but she has like a really light touch and talks about heavy themes, but she's also really kind of out there. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I could think, I wish, you know what will happen is toward the end of this, I'll be like, oh, I don't, I've got a couple, I've got a couple more. Well, um, you feel free to jump in with that. Yeah. That later on, but that's, a, you know, what you said also at the beginning is I had a very similar background with, I read a lot of Isaac Asimov. My dad loved to read. I read Agatha Christie and um, yeah. Pete Woodhouse. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but yeah, yeah, which is maybe why I appreciate a lot of the humor as well. But you know, to kind of get now into the story itself. So in Supernormal, we meet Beth, Taylor, and Denise's three siblings, and they have these superpowers but they're really kind of, well, they're not ordinary superpowers. I mean, they're pretty amazing superpowers, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they don't use them in an amazing way, um, which is, you know, part of the the angst and the, you know, they've had, a, they've had some tragedy in their life. Their dad has died. Their mom is ailing. You know, Beth is trying to find us. They're all kind of trying to find themselves. So, and then Philip, who, as you mentioned earlier, is a a little, uh, how old is he in this? He's in sixth grade. He's in sixth grade. Okay. And so he is, um, you know, he sort of drives the plot a little bit in terms of bringing them, bringing them together, giving them this purpose at the end where they have to rescue him um, when he's kidnapped. And it's interesting because, you know, there was a very different kidnapping theme in the, in the, in the previous yeah yeah vision but there's a there's a question in here somewhere i'm gonna get to it i promise <laughs> <laughs> um one of the things that i thought was interesting is that we learn about beth and denise's superpowers early in the book so beth can fly mm -hmm. and denise can become invisible and beth uses her flying for things like to make herself a little lighter on the scale um to hide from to get an escape from situations at some point in time and then denise uses her superpowers being invisible to commit crimes pretty much petty petty stuff <laughs> you know they're both looking for for i guess for greater meaning in their lives but we don't get the reveal about taylor's superpower which i find most intriguing until like page 86 so I just wondered if there was a reason for that, like if there was some, if it was just how the story unfolded or if you thought about his power differently, because it is very different and you can talk a bit about the power as well, but you know, was there a reason that you kind of held that back for a while from the reader? I think what I wanted to do mostly with the powers and again, in, in that previous version, I held back on telling really anyone's power like 
for a hundred or so pages. And it, and so I think that in this draft, I very much thought those powers are a part of the people. And that as they're introduced, we kind of need to know what it is and where they are and why they're not using them. And, and so essentially my main goal for the book was to, to, to set up a world that felt as close to our world as possible, as believable, that these characters feel like people you would know, situations you could be in, and just slightly tweaked by them having these powers. And my idea was that if they had these powers and they were in our exact world, that they would not want to stand out. They wouldn't want anyone to know. And so these are well-guarded, well-kept secrets that the, these three siblings have had for their whole life. And there aren't very many people who know that they can even do what they can do. And I think what ended up happening was, is as it unfolded, Taylor was not part of the original action of the, the, the story. He sort of comes in later, they go to get him when they realize that the mom is dying. And so I think that I, I like that idea. I like that there was this, in the background, there was this younger brother that they kept talking about or referencing. And then when you see him, he gets his own chapter and you get this almost like a short story of, of a setup of him where you really learn everything you need to know about him, about his life and, and what he's doing and where he's at in a pretty succinct way, I thought, that actually kind of stands on its own, much in the way that I think a comic book would maybe lay out. It's almost like you get this like quick little origin story of him. And it worked in the older draft. And so I kept it in this draft too, to sort of like bring him in later. It also mixes it up because once he's in the mix, it changes the dynamic of all the siblings. So, Right, that's very true. And in a real way, it's true to the way that sibling relationships work often. You know, you have three siblings, there's always often one who's sort of on the peripheral of the relationships, one who has a slightly, especially the youngest, youngest, right? Who has a different relationship with his parents that the older ones may resent or you know, just maybe not in any major significant way that they even understand, but they do have, you know, so it made sense to me always. And I love the way that Taylor is introduced. We meet him in a bar. He's, you know, going to have, we we are shown not only his power, which is that he can heal people, but the pain that it ironically causes him you know he's not able to heal himself and he is um this 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 thing has brought him nothing but but disaster and tragedy to his yeah. life and we get that feeling you know just the idea of him sitting in a bar drinking you know immediately you kind of know okay things are not by himself <laughs> things are things are not going going well with well, him and the thing with taylor is too is that the limitation of it you know, like the two sisters, the two older sisters, you know, Beth can fly and it's absolute and Denise can turn invisible and it's also absolute. She can do it whenever she wants. But Taylor can only heal someone while he's touching them. And the moment he removes his hand, everything that he was healing or whatever that was ailing that person immediately comes back. And so he's constantly, you know, reminded, I guess, of his own shortcoming his own inability to like fully heal someone. And he can also see that moment when, because when you, you know, I always felt really strongly about Taylor and what he could do. And this idea that when he heals someone, he just knows 
when they when they can see what it could be like if they were healed and then they realize that they have to go back to where they were it's never a good thing <laughs> yeah. like it's better not to know it's better not to be healed for that time it's better not to to have that moment and i always thought that that was a really interesting part of his character it is it is i think that um you know for me he was my favorite character and he was the one that of all of them, I walked away thinking about them for a long time afterwards, which for me is a hallmark of a really good book. But Taylor lived with me for a very long time after I read about him. I, you know, the possibilities, the depth of the pain that he must be experiencing is just so um so visceral that and you know you 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 bring it out you bring it out so well but I guess you know that's my favorite did you have a favorite character just to ask a really trivial question I think in a way Taylor's probably one of probably my favorite character too or at least I feel the most affinity for him because he wants to do more I feel like his sisters you know they have the struggles that they're having but they're just trying to maintain you know like denise is turning invisible and stealing things because she can't hold a job she can't you know she's trying to like get by and she you know she has to borrow money from the mom and everything and so but taylor has like a dream you know he wants to be a rock star you know he's he's got his music and you know part of the thing in that opening chapter for him is that the guy who's recording him he's run out of money uh taylor's run out of money for recording time and um he basically reveals to this guy who's recording that he has this power and that's sort of how he's paying this guy this guy's in a wheelchair and so every taylor is offsetting the cost of his recording time by giving this guy moments of time where he's not in it confined to his wheelchair by holding on to him and um it's, I mean, it's a pretty, I find the whole thing pretty heartbreaking, but I also feel a real affinity for people who are like trying to go for their dreams. You know, he's got this like artistic, you know, whatever he's taken all this like terrible stuff in his life and he's trying to get his, his music and everything out there. And I can, I, I can, I can feel that. <laughs> that for sure. Yeah. I think as, as creatives, many of us can relate to that, that struggle for sure. I before we kind of move on to something else, I wanted to talk a little bit about John. So John is Philip's father, and John is also quite, in a real way, a tragic character. <laughs> he is, he's doing an amazing job raising Philip. I mean, you wrote someone there who is just, he seems really in tune with Philip's needs. He's putting Philip ahead of everything else. He, you know, he loves that boy to distraction, but he doesn't, he can't see that. He can't see how well he's doing. He can't see, you know, Philip obviously looks up to him, admires him. He can't see any of that. And it just makes him, I don't know, just, as I said, a, a very tragic character. And I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about him and what you see him bringing into the, into the story yeah, his role with regard to or juxtaposed against this, this, the three siblings. Sure. I mean, I think in this last draft, and again, not everything is completely, I don't have, a, have these exact thoughts as I'm going through. But I think what's interesting to see as I went through, you know, the, the final version that we have out there now 
is that he ultimately has a superpower as well, right? And so what's really interesting, I think, about all the characters is that you have the three of them that actually have superpowers and they're not doing really anything with them that you would imagine and they're hiding them and they're keeping them them secret. And then you have uh, John who doesn't have a superpower like that, like a, but he has a superpower in that he's taken sort of a tragic situation with the his wife leaving him with the with a young baby and him feeling ill-prepared for that and raising that boy and doing everything for him, just as you said, and not being able to see that in himself, which I think is sort of like a, a mirror of what of what the others are doing with their superpower. They have this thing they could do and they don't do it, where he's got something that he's amazing at and he's doing it, but he can't, he can't see it. He can't, he can't recognize it in himself. And so it's just another form of uh of tragedy, I guess. Um, I always, John was one of the first characters in the book, because like I said, he and Philip were sort of the main characters before. They're still big characters here now, but essentially just for people who haven't read the book, which is probably most people listening to this, um, is that Philip discovers by accident that these three siblings have powers. And he, in the course of the book, he is sort of becomes the catalyst to draw them out a little bit. He sort of integrate he or insinuates his way into their life because the three siblings, their mom is his teacher at school. And John, in this these newer drafts, I felt I, I felt like it made more sense to have him be, get folded in as well. And so he starts sort of like a young or like a new relationship with Denise which is the the oldest sister and or yeah and then so as the two families are sort of growing together you realize more and more about the past and what's happened with with Philip's mom and that situation sort of comes to a head and she actually appears and sort of it's like kind of it's like a light kidnapping <laughs> she <laughs> takes him i don't think she had intended to but she definitely takes him and it's and and they all come together to have to to find him and, and bring him back. And, th and that sort of catalyst really, really, I think, works now. And so John has to become sort of aware of what these these people can do to even Denise, who he's, you know, just starting to date. Now he's realizing, oh, well, she can turn invisible. And so there's a, there's a lot of really uh, great moments in, in there as they all sort of team up at the end. But you know, in a way, he's part of that team too. He's the he's the fourth superhero. It's the four of them that are going after and trying to get Philip back. And and I and I think it it works really well that way. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. And it's when I think about Philip as well and his role in bringing them together. But he also there's a way that he responds to their superhero powers, which I think is important, an important addition to the book because he because he's a sixth grader, you know, a sixth grader finds out someone can turn invisible. They're like, oh, okay, that's really amazing and cool and they don't question like that's impossible or it must be a trick of physics or you know he right. just kind of, I mean he's amazed. He thinks, but he doesn't, he just accepts it and he keeps it moving. And I think that that really helps to, with the whole idea of the the powers being super normal, you know, I think it, it really adds to that and helps the reader to, to go along with that idea. 
that there's this world and these three people just have super now superpowers and you know just just buy it and keep and, and yeah. keep reading, <laughs> you know so yeah, you get to be, you get to be philip in the book you have to say you know what why not why why couldn't they have it <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly so you know i know that we went through a few ideas with the title and i don't know if you mind talking about that a little bit and how we ended up on supernormal or how you ended up on supernormal i can't even remember now yeah i know that's not where we started but no no you know, when the, book, the titles can be really tricky. So I think they're really tricky. And sometimes you nail it and sometimes you don't. But, you know, I um, I can say two things about the title. And uh, one of them is, is that when it first started, I was so committed to that idea that Philip couldn't be touched, that the book was actually called Touch. And there was like a, a play on the idea that Taylor also had that power to heal. And, you know, again, a lot of that's gone now. But it was a big focus in the early drafts and it was called touch. And then I decided, I think when you accepted it, it was called all that remains, right? Yeah. Uh, which I actually took from a Tom Waits song. It was just like a lyric and a, you know, in a Tom Waits song. And I thought, Oh, it's, you know, it was a, you know, like just a throwaway thing, but it kind of fit that they, what, what everyone had remaining to them or whatever. I don't know. I, my brain was able to make it work, but I think ultimately when we did the rewrite, it was pretty apparent that it had tonally shifted a bit and that it had, to me, it had sort of like taken on a bit of where I had gone in the intervening years, which is that, you know, there was, a, I was able to mine a little more humor in there. There it, it had a little bit of the, the touch that I was going for that I had been doing in my other projects. And so it needed a, a title that didn't sound so heavy. All that remains, it sounds like really, uh, <laughs> it sounds really uh, dour. And so, um, I liked the idea of what was it? Oh, extraordinary. So for a while I was going to call it, you know, extraordinary. And then a movie came out, I think called extraordinary. And it was like, I thought, ah, even though I can still use the same title, I'm not going to. And so I started trying to just think of play on word kind of in a way. And, you know, like taking that the word supernormal and breaking it in half and then this idea that and once I had that I realized it really highlights what I was trying to do which is that these people are normal people completely normal other than this one super these one superpowers that they each have and um so I thought that it really worked and once I had it I think I wrote you I was like okay I think I got it <laughs> <This is laughs> yeah um, I think it's a great title Really yeah, and I think it really works. And the funny thing was, is I met somebody here when we moved and they were was talking about the book coming out and I was telling them about my collection. So my collection is called Not Everyone is Special. And this one is called Super Normal. And she's like, I think I I think I noticed a theme in there, <laughs> which I had, never really, I had never really thought about before. Uh, that, yeah, it was definitely there's like this focus on people not being special and people being normal and people, you know, struggling with what they have or what what they could have and you know trying to be more or less than what they were and um you know I do think that 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 does go across both both of my books so 
Yeah, I think often as authors, people often ask me, like, what do you want people to get out of that this book? And I'm never really thinking like that when I'm writing. I'm never thinking mm-hmm. about, oh, I want to teach people this. I want to teach people right. that. But there's something, usually an idea that's rolling around in my head. And clearly the idea rolling around in your head is, you know, it seems growing um, idea that we, that everybody is special, you know, or you're mm-hmm. so special. And obviously that can, that's not possible. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And so I, that's possibly why this is, coming out but one of the questions I did have for you to roll off of that a little bit was like with any perspectives or beliefs that of yours that were challenged like when you were writing this going into this I know that's a difficult question um, but you're writing about family and you're writing about um, these struggles that these regular people are having to survive and get by every day um, you're writing about motherhood about um fatherhood about caring for people about you know about you wrote this Beth is the character Beth is LGBTQ um so you know there's that in there but as you were writing like did you learn something or something a belief or something you went in with kind of challenge as the characters reveal themselves to you and as I'm asking the question I realize I would hate to be asked that question (laughs) there it is I've done it (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I learn something every time I write. And I I would say the same thing about reading as well. I think the more you put yourself out there to try to understand people and try to, to get to the essence of what makes somebody do the things they do or say the thing, you know, I, I find that the more I write and the more I read, when I have conversations about stuff, I have less knee-jerk reactions now, right? Like I can, somebody will tell me something somebody did that was really horrible. And I might say, well, you know, that person just had this go on or this guy, I, I can I can start to, to put the pieces together of how you might get to where you were ended up in that, in that position. And I think that it's kind of universal. So, you know, I, I have my experiences and, you know, for better or for worse, I have the experience of being a white male growing up in the United States. But I can learn a lot about a lot about people and meeting them, talking to them, reading about them, watching movies about them, watching. And so I think that there's an opportunity to like learn about humanity. So do I think that there was necessarily something I was completely challenged on in there? I mean, I don't know if I have the best answer for that, but I do think that every single time I come up with a character, they live with me and they become part of me. And so I start to see the things the way they do. And if they have a different background than I do, or they have a different belief system than I do, then there's some empathy there. And I can understand, even if I don't ultimately agree, or, I mean, I can write a character who I think is a horrible person and but I can, if I can get you there to where you can understand how they reach those conclusions, then, then that was the, that was the challenge for me. You know, the challenge is how can I get there? How can I make these people feel like actual human beings? And it's, it can be hard. I mean, it can take 20 years and five drafts. <laughs> well, so. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm really glad that you stuck with this. And I think that you did achieve this because for me, 
I felt as I read it that each of the characters was a separate entity, um, not an offshoot of you or anything along those lines, that they they were fully fleshed out and complete and distinguishable, um, you know, especially in the dialogue. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, you, you talked earlier about dialogue, and I think that that's one of the strengths of this book, the many strengths of this book is the, the dialogue between the characters. It's sparse, it's just enough, it's witty and really enjoyable and fun to read, but it also does the work of, of distinguishing and characterizing each one. Like you can look at a line, at least maybe because I'm so close to the book, I can look <laughs> at a line of the of the dialogue and I could tell you who said that because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't come out of Beth's mouth, but that's definitely right. <laughs> that's a little snarky, you know, or that's, you know, that's they're they're each very distinct and um and well fleshed out for sure. So well, we're kind of getting to the end of things of the interview now and I know that I mentioned at the beginning that you are in Barcelona and I would like to hear a little bit about your writing life there, how things are going, how I know you, I think you work with bookshop.org, how that affects your, you know, your, your writing, the time, what's your schedule like? You mentioned that you wrote another novel, which I did not think I knew. Um, <laughs> I'm excited about that. So just tell us a little bit about what's going on with you writing wise and what's next. Yeah, I mean, I have, um, we did move to Barcelona. We, we, I have three children and one, one's about to be 10 and then eight and six. So they're all pretty close together. Mm -hmm. And my wife is, um, she's, her dad was Irish and she lived in Ireland when she was young. So she had this this ability to move to Europe through through that connection and so we talked a lot about moving here and again I think it, I'm always up for an adventure I'm ready to move I'm ready to change everything at any at the drop of a hat I'm ready to go and so I think one thing for me about you know choosing Barcelona and moving here and our, my mother-in-law lives with us too and this is a place that she really, really liked. I'd never been here before. I'd never been to Europe before we moved here. Like we, the day I showed up here, we lived here. That was my first day in Europe. So, but I, I like that. And what's been really interesting for me as a writer is again, to put myself in a situation where I'm meeting a, a whole different group of people with a whole different way of thinking. And there's a whole other language here, two languages actually in Barcelona. And, um, and so I'm learning that and I'm meeting the other parents in the school. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, I'm part of a community. Like there's a there's an element of community that I felt I was lacking in any place we lived in the United States, actually. And it's really, really, it's quite wonderful. And so that's what I would say, I think about Barcelona. There's a lot I could say, but I think that sense of community and that sense of purpose here, it feels really nice. Like I don't ever want to leave. And um you know, as far as like my writing, yeah, I have this other novel. The reason that uh, I think we don't talk about it much and and I've tried to push it out there and everything. I think part of the struggle is, is that it turned out to be 540 pages long. It's a pretty epically huge book. And I think that it's a hard sell right now. I think, you know, I've got to like slow play it I, a little bit. I think I need to get a few other projects out there before someone's like, okay, well, we'll take a chance on your your 540 page book but I love it I it's I'm so excited um 
and I'm still always trying to get it out there. And then I, I can say that I do write a lot of short stories as well. And for the last bunch of years, I've been writing some thematically linked ones that where, and, and, and they actually lean into the humor a little more. They're still, they're still pretty, like if I told you what they were about, it would have that same experience of like, that doesn't sound funny. But <laughs> essentially every story deals with a couple and they're in mostly about to break up. They're all having troubles. And then uh, like a magical creature. So there's one with a Bigfoot. There's one with um, a harpy or whatever. Every single story has a different magical creature in some way, some in a big way, some in just a small way. And so there's like a fantastical element to each of them. And um, I've done over the last like six or seven years, I've written 20 something of them. And I just found out I it's not been fully announced yet, but so I can't get too, too into details, but I do know that in 2025, that book will be coming out. Um, I do have a publisher for that one and it's called Magic Can't Save Us. And so hopefully, um, you know, I'll have more information for you soon on that. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to hear that. And I, um, as you know, I'm a big fan. So definitely keep us posted on whatever you have coming out and whatever you're doing next, because I'm excited to read more about I'm excited to read more Josh Denslow. And um, <laughs> as we've been talking about this book, Supernormal, and thank you so much for giving me your time for taking, I know it's afternoon with you, it's morning here um, in the on the East Coast of the US. But I do encourage all of our listeners, all of our listeners out there to get a copy of Supernormal. It is intriguing. It's funny. It's a tearjerker you'll love the characters, you'll want to meet them, and you'll definitely want to read more from, from Josh, okay? So thanks so much again, Josh, for being Yeah, here. thank you. Well, yeah. I, will, I will say one last thing too. Sure. Thank you for all your time <laughs> working with me. It's been years, it was years in the making and the end up, and uh, I really, I couldn't, I wouldn't, the book would not exist without you. And so I really appreciate everything you did for me and for the book and everything I really a lot so thank no, you no it's my pleasure and I wish you all the best with with your new work and I'm excited as I said to see what did you say magic What's magic it? can't save us magic can't save us I'm excited to read to read that <laughs> when it comes out thank you all oh right. I should also can we mention your book too Carol has a book out there just came out <laughs> in September so everyone needs to get a copy of that I, I'm blanking on the name of the book it's, it's called what's, what's that by the morning yeah, morning. I knew I had morning. Yeah, yeah. we'll start by the morning. Yeah, so I'm doing the rounds, I'm doing the, the interviews and the, the book talks and that sort of thing as well. So, you know, we've been kind of twinsies on that. So. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so everyone go to bookshop.org. You can buy both of our books and just exactly. take them ship right at the same time. Perfect plan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And you'll be supporting an indie um, exactly. at the same time. So it's a win, exactly. win, win. <laughs> All right. All right. Hey, well, great. Thanks so much again and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. The Moonshine Murmurs podcast is produced by Stillhouse Press staff in coordination with Watershed Lit. For more episodes and updates, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Twitter, and Instagram. Stillhouse Press is a student-led craft publisher working with George Mason University and Watershed Lit. You can find out more about Stillhouse Press and upcoming releases and events at stillhousepress.org. Thank you for listening.